There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm here with Kristen Kepler. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. I'm excited for this conversation. So as background, Kristen is a thought leader at the forefront of a global shift in family wealth advising known as Wealth 3.0. She guides affluent enterprising families, rising gen, and the professionals to support them in embracing the positive power of wealth and doing the hard inner work of money. And we got connected through a mutual friend, David Wells, I believe, who's an old friend of mine. And I assume you all know each other through family office circles and connections. Indeed. That's great. Yeah, he's a terrific guy. And he talked to me about your new book that you've coming out, which we'll get into, but would love to hear a little bit more on the background, your educational work, the professional work, and, and how you got to be involved in this family office community. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'd be be happy to share. You know, so one of the things, so let me just, let me just paint the quick context that for what it is I actually do, because I come in through a little bit different doorway than a lot of professionals who work in this space. You know, many of the professionals, many of your colleagues, many of David's colleagues are people who come in through with, with a a financial background or a law background or an accounting background, right? They're technicians that have strong technical skills to support wealth creation and families who have wealth and are maintaining that. My doorway into this is is human capital. So I don't have a law background. I don't have an accounting background. Um, I have a background in human biology and peak performance. And I have an MBA and an MPH. So I have the business background. And then I also have a master's in applied positive psychology. And everything, 
all the work that I do with the the multi-generational families I work with is on the development of the people and the system. So like, what is the, if it's a family enterprise, if they have an active operating business, we're looking at the sort of business and how it is sort of reacts to and is in relationship with a family and how the family is interacting with that. If the family has sold a business and they have liquidity and they have joint assets together, then we're really talking a lot about how do we do wealth well? How do we support the individuals within our family ecosystem to integrate wealth well into their lives, which seems like it should be a no-brainer. But as you and I both know, wealth can be a very disruptive force. It can be obviously a huge gift and create a massive leg up on many fronts, but it can be a very disruptive force. And I came into this work, it's probably been about eight, 17 or 18 years ago now, officially, but unofficially, as the daughter of an entrepreneur and somebody who took his company public when I was getting ready to go to college. So he started the company when I was getting ready to go to college. My dad did. And by the time I was getting ready to graduate college, he was taking that company public and then sold it a year or two later. And so... For me, my 20s were really a time of trying to figure out these dual realities, this reality of like me as a professional, as I just mentioned, I have a undergraduate in human biology and chemistry and a combined graduate degree in business and public health. And I was really wanting to work in the corporate environment doing health and productivity management. So just a job, you know, a J-O-B job. And I liked it. I, I was really good at it. And living in this space where my dad was a big thinking wealth creator. He had always been an entrepreneur or at that time really an intrapreneur, but you know, he's always building businesses within businesses. And the last business he started, he took his own capital, he put all his chips on the table. He remortgaged our family home and went and created something really successful and financially successful. And so for me, I just like, there was just this dual reality and I, I'm the youngest of four. So I have three older brothers and we started pretty early on having family meetings, getting together with the six of us in my nuclear family. But we we're coming back together as adults to talk about things like estate planning and grats and islets and, and tax planning and joint assets and things that were like, I consider myself pretty intelligent, but I could not understand. Meeting after meeting after meeting, we would go in with the attorney or the financial advisor that my parents had, and I would come out feeling just as unaware or just as sort of lacking for an understanding of this landscape as I went into that each meeting. So through my 20s, I was doing this sort of this inner, I was on this inner journey of trying to just figure out like, what is success? If you're not going to go be a big, you know, knock it out of the park financial success, is it good enough just to do good work and have a job? And like, is that enough? And, you know, because my role model was someone who could like make some pretty big things happen. So there was this inner journey for me. And then also this outer journey of just trying to understand the landscape. I would, you know, I remember getting asked to go down to the attorney's office and, you know, hey, Kristen, can you pop down there? They have some documents for you to sign. And I would go and I would do it. Right. And I, I never even thought about asking what I was signing and nobody was doing anything nefarious. It was very much a like, hey, we set up this new trust. We need someone who's going to be a trustee or we need someone who's, you know, you're a beneficiary of. It was, it was just stuff that the good-hearted, well-intentioned, really bright professionals that my parents hired were pulling together all the pieces and parts. 
but I didn't, I didn't understand it. And I didn't even think about asking for information on that. So ultimately, my love of human development and human peak performance connected with this inner journey of me trying to figure out, like, how do you do this well? And in my late 20s, I was 29, actually, when I started my consulting business. And, and where I was really started was wanting to help other rising gen that I, I assumed were out there who were good-hearted, hardworking, committed to figuring this out, but just as lacking in knowledge and support to understand this landscape as I was. And so that's where I started and ultimately, over time, moved from working just with Rising Gen to realizing that in order to really help the Rising Gen I was passionate about, I needed to work with whole family systems. So I built out my skill set to, to do family systems work. And then ultimately realizing that so much wealth is created by business, right? By enterprise and very often privately held enterprise. And so built out that skill set. And so where where I sit today is is a practice where I work with ultra high net worth families, often ones that still have businesses or have recent liquidity and I'm really helping them navigate the the landscape of integrating wealth into their families so that ultimately it can become a tool to support the thriving of all family members and not become a crutch or something that that ends up taking any family members out at the knees. You know, it's interesting when I was doing my homework on you, you talked about kind of this peak performance concept. You've got a degree within that kind of sphere. And it, it says in 1999, you were the wellness program director at University of Denver. I imagine that the idea or the concept of wellness in 1999 was not really broadly accepted or used. I mean, I was a gosh, a junior in high school, and we certainly weren't talking about wellness on a broad stage. Could you talk a little bit about what that looked like in the 90s and how you got involved in that world? Yeah, I would. I absolutely. So the, the quick story about how I got involved in that world is that for forever, I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to I went to school at the University of Denver and got a a degree in human biology because that was the pre-med degree at at the university. But while I was there, I did an internship at the hospital, at a local hospital, and realized that really doctors spent an immense amount of time focusing on illness. And I was I realized that what I really wanted was to help people connect to wellness, to thriving, flourishing. Like what are the what are the components that really support a well-lived life. And at the time, wellness was this idea of like organizational wellness, like you would have a wellness program at a university, or I worked at Coors Brewing Company, had one of the the nation's premier employee wellness programs, which was like very cutting edge at the time. And for me, it, it was my way of connecting my love of human biology and sort of the capability of human potential with ideas that were forward moving, that were really about thriving. It wasn't just about tending to disease, which is also important, obviously, but where my passion was, was really from like the zero line plus rather than the zero line negative, right? It was really about like, how do we harness the human potential that we have and do something significant with it? And recognizing that our engine is our physical well-being, but you ultimately have to have that physical well-being connected to emotional well-being connected to spiritual 
you know, whatever it is that you see as your purpose and what drives you, those things have to be in alignment. And so I cut my teeth at the University of Denver and you're right, it was very new. And we had very, the frameworks we had then were rudimentary compared to the tools and resources and frameworks we have now. Yeah. I mean, at this point, wellness is almost used to the extent that it's cliche or, you know, hackneyed just in terms of it's it's part of marketing materials. Many families are now thinking of, and you've written about this, you know, their human capital as an asset and health and wellness is a huge component of that. How do you work with, if it's a family business or a family office, incorporating that health and wellness component into the overall, you know, enterprise level system? Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting because, you know, so much of the work that when I first started my professional career, health and wellness was all that I focused on, right? That was, that was it. And as I have, as I've worked in, or as I've expanded my focus with families, we're looking at the system-wide element of like how communication, decision-making, how do we governance? And so it's like this bigger sort of ecosystem of decisions and tools but at the heart of it still is this idea that if a family isn't well, like is don't have practices that support the well-being of the individuals. And if there's a lot of addiction or a lot of a lot of emotional, you know, disconnection, like people are really not fully engaging in in their lives, we can't do all the other stuff, right? You can't have great conversations about decision making and governance if you have family members who are not awake and alive and ready and willing and able to to do the hard work of owning assets together and still tending to the needs of being in a family. And so for me, that showed like, I feel like that's one of the secret tools I have in my back pocket is that I've come through to this work through a doorway that's very different than most people, even most people who who really work on the human capital side of family wealth and family enterprise don't necessarily have the wellness kind of background that I have. So there's this element around health and well-being that I get to bring to the table. Yeah. I mean, I talk about this on the show a lot with many different professionals and advisors, but it's incredible to me that these families, including our own, immense amount of resources. We pay for top-end estate planning, accounting, bookkeeping, investments, but we really don't put any resources or thought into mental well-being, physical well-being. We don't allocate resources for that for the family, which just seems so short-sighted. But but I do think the conversation is changing, yeah. especially within the next-gen community. Yep. I, I think it's changing too. And I think that what you describe is is not unique, right? This idea that you would in a situation where there are financial resources that the first thing you would tend to is how do we protect them, make sure that that family members know how to interact with them, how do we create decisions about how we're going to use these resources, like to go first to the technical aspects. It's what every family I've ever worked with does, including my own. And yet, then to be able to step back and say, like, ask the bigger question of like, well, what is it all for? And how how do we maintain the, the sort of like the heartbeat of our family? How do we make sure that the individuals who are all a part of this system, who are probably benefiting from the system, who are giving up 
time and their bandwidth to be able to, you know, attend family council meetings or do all the things that families that have resources when they are interacting with those well and the more, you know, and the more family members there are and the more need to have organization and structure, family members are using their time and talent in some way to invest back in the family, right? And if ultimately there's not a bigger conversation also happening about how are we supporting the thriving of each of the individuals here and as and of us as a family, then I think there's an opportunity there. And I think that the sea is changing, right? As we think about, you'd mentioned at the the opening of this podcast, the idea of, of Wealth 3.0, which is really this shift that is taking place in our inner in collective industry, family business, family wealth, tax, estate, like the the collective sort of disciplines all that that surround significant families. There is this sea change taking place that is really asking really all of us to think more about not just best practices as it comes to the money itself, but how do we broaden the, the lens and really think about the best use for that financial resource in how it is supporting the human capital of families. And then there's, I think, a real shot at multi-generational success. But if we're not tending the human capital, the wealth will eventually dissipate because without the people awake and alive and ready to do something with it, it'll just get consumed. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So how do you tackle that in practice? If, if somebody were to engage you, what does that engagement look like? What is the mandate that you typically have? What's the scope of the work that you're doing? Give us just a, a general idea of, of the work that you're doing with families at this yeah. time. Yes. So there, there's lots of answers for how that could look. But one of the elements that I think really speaks to this idea of a family sort of, I don't know the right word, but like really waking up to the potential of what those financial resources can do in growing the human capital of a family. One of the, the things that I found to be incredibly useful is there's a process I call the wealth roadmap, which is really when a family for engages me, I spend time with every single key stakeholder in the family to really understand all the perspectives that are present at that table. And then to build out a, a framework where, the, and th this part isn't revolutionary. Lots of people, consultants, facilitators will do the work where it's like, let's get to the heart of like, what are the values you hold most dear? What is a guiding mission for what your family can collectively say, this is our heartbeat. This is what we're about. So that part's not revolutionary. But the place where I've found it to be really a different kind of process that really helps families figure out how to connect their philosophical, that values mission element with boots on the ground. How do we do this? Is this piece of the process where we get really clear on really answering the question. It's what I call a wealth purpose statement, but it's answering the question. What is the impact we want wealth to have in the lives of our family members and our community? And it's not big mission stuff. It's about things like we don't want to rob our family members of the opportunity to feel the power of earning income in their own right. We don't want to buffer our, or we do want to give in a way that supports the, the well-being of family members and our community, but doesn't become a crutch, right? There's the elements that every family's unique in what they come up with, but 
are unique in the way they come up with the language, but often it's really about how can wealth be a tool and not be a detriment. And then once we've done that, then we go and integrate with the technical advisors. So that's when it's like, okay, now that we understand the impact you want this wealth to have, let's go back and look at the trust documents. How, how are they set up? What is intended to happen? And as that trust document is written, will it have the impact you want it to have? Or, you know, so for instance, I had a client family when I very first was refining this process who we went through and we did all this work. And at the end of it, one of the things they were really clear about was that they didn't want to infuse wealth into the lives of their kids who are at this point like 21 and 24, 25, and rob them of the opportunity to do the hard work of finding their own path, right? Which is pretty common for families. And then we, so we did all this work. We nailed down all these components of their wealth purpose statement. There's probably five or six key things. Then we went to go look at the technical documents and their kids had a mirroring trust. So same trust or two trusts, but exact same terms. And in that trust, one of the, they had it set up for like at age 30, automatic mandatory distributions. And the trust at that point had gotten significantly bigger than when they formed them back when their kids were 10 and 13 or whatever. And so the trusts were significant. There's mandatory distributions five years away for the oldest. And she had yet to have really found a path. She had had jobs for six months or nine months or a year and a half, but then it wouldn't work. And she and they were the parents were starting to feel like if in five years she has this sight line, you know, to the mailbox money idea, right? Money's just going to start flowing in. Will she ever do the hard work of like grinding through and really finding her place and finding a way of contributing? And so they they actually decanted the trusts and spent the money and the time to rewrite them in a way that did not have mandatory automatic distributions. But if we hadn't gone back and actually looked at the documents, we could have done all this great philosophical work. And then when their daughter was 29 and a half, they would have been like, oh, shoot, wow, she's getting money starting, you know, next year. And I think that so that's one aspect of really thinking in a more holistic way about how do we connect the technical disciplines with what is really at the heart for for the well-being of fam for our families of as a whole and also for the well-being of the members in the family. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. I'd love to get into this. You've written on this and it's an incredible article, but these tripwires for younger generations in the family business and these these fact patterns that keep coming up again and again. I just feel like there are, within the next-gen community, real struggles, frankly, that people don't really want to get into. And they're now rearing their head because this transition is actually happening from baby boomer to Gen Z and millennial. And so I'd love to just have you kind of summarize the, the article that you put together yeah, And give us some best practices about how to avoid these common occurrences that keep popping up again and again. 
Yeah, for sure. So this is what what you're referring to is a, an article that was published in the Harvard Business Review this fall. What was the date? October 3rd. So, you know, a month and a half ago or so. And while I don't think that this is a comprehensive list of tripwires that families who are who are born into significant families face, I do think that these are pretty common. These are some of the top that if I think about my client practice, these are really the ones that come up pretty big. And so I named three key tripwires. One is this idea of identity. It's really who am I and who am I separate from my family and from the resources of my family, whether that's a business or whether that's wealth. And it seems like it would be I think from the outside, it seems like this shouldn't be that hard of a thing. I don't know. You just are who you are and you have to be born into this situation, right? But it is very sticky. And you can ask any person who's been raised in a family of significance, whether that's they have a prominent name in the community or they have a a prominent amount of wealth that people are aware of, or there's a business that bears their name, that this, this sense of like being a human being separate from that massiveness of a family name and family wealth is it's way more difficult than you would think. And so one of the things and, and identity as a developmental path is something that's a developmental goal for all humans to have a solid sense of identity of who they are separate from their family of origin, separate from their, you know, who they are just as an individual is it's fundamentally important to being able to connect back with family in an adult mature way and to be able to pursue a path of contribution, you have to know who you are first. So the antidote to that one is is to actively build what we call identity capital. And identity capital is really, it's like all the experiences and resources and the things that we do, particularly in our 20s, that it's a really, the 20s are a really rich time of identity capital building. And it's a time that it's, you know, it can be really good to like go out of state to go to college, get away from the place that where your name is known and just really create, you know, live as just sort of a person rather than a person that who is, you know, XYZ name. And also to do some things like take assessments, like, you know, the Clifton Strengths, the Strengths Finder, or the Via Character Strengths, like really understand who you are. So that's one. The second tripwire is there's an immense, the bar for success in families of significance is very high. And so you can be kind of a an above average great human being who's doing wonderful things in a job job and just making things happen, right? This was this was sort of at the heart of my question in my 20s like is it good enough just to like go get a W2 job and like go to work and come home and make dinner and hang out with my husband? Is that is that enough? And So I think that that recognizing that the bar for success is really high, the tripwire is that the rising gen in that situation just feel like I'm never going to clear that. So why try? And it's easier to paint more painful, but easier to sort of lean into the learned helplessness that comes with, I don't think I'm ever going to clear that bar. So like, you know, if I don't have to earn, maybe I won't go show myself as the you know, the idiot I think I am, or the one who's not as as successful as the person or the lineage that came before me. And so the the real antidote for that one is having growth mindset and grit, two key character traits that are fundamentally important to development 
for all people and for rising gen raised in in a situation where there's significant financial security, it's a lot harder. There's a buffering effect. So you don't necessarily have to build grit, right? There's a lot of people around professionals and there's just a lot of buffering. Like you don't necessarily have to go figure it all out, figure out how to do normal things like register your own card and pay your own taxes and all that kind of stuff. And so growth mindset and grit are character traits that are partly inherited and partly built. And so like all character traits, they can be, if someone can be born really gritty, and if you have gritty parents, you're more likely to be gritty, but you can also build grit. And there's some techniques I talk about in the, in the article. So maybe we can put those in the show notes for people that there's some, some great ways to parent for those skills, for those character traits and for individuals to take that on and say like, all right, I'm, I'm not giving up. Like I am going to pursue my version of success and doggedly, like whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be financial. The last thing I would I would say that is really common is the diminished motivation to earn income because you are a part of a successful business or you're the beneficiary of a trust. And so what's interesting about this one to me, and I've seen it time and time again with Rising Gen, is that they may not have a financial need to work but we mistake that the lack of a financial need to work means that there's not a human need to work, right? We're still wired for contribution. And so this idea that even if you don't have to go like earn a buck to pay your mortgage, it doesn't mean that that waking up each day and engaging in the world in meaningful ways and feeling like your contribution to the world is reflected back to you in a, in some form of validation. Without that sense of mattering, we as humans start to quickly spiral into depression, right? If there's not a if there's not a real sense of like I'm getting this feedback loop from the world that I'm doing something meaningful. And even if it's, you know, it doesn't have to be meaning on the scale of world-changing meaning. It could be like, hey, I volunteer at my kids' school and at the the local senior citizens home. And I get this sense that like when I show up and I bring my, my gifts and skills that it matters, like that's enough. But having some sense of it mattering that you're there is, is essential to human well-being. So I could talk about this stuff all day, but I'll like cut myself off. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the, the article is tremendous and, and we'll reference it in the show notes, but I definitely encourage people to check it out because the families that I know, including our own, and these are very reoccurring themes, but then there are things that you, you're not helpless against them, which I think is, you know, calling them out is one thing, but providing people with actionable steps to address them is another. Yeah. And that's really the power of the article. I also want, want to get into the book. I mean, we're, we've already gone for 30 minutes or so, but the book, you know, the myth of the silver spoon, navigating family wealth and creating an impactful life. I always ask people to come on the show that write books. What precipitated this and, you know, how hard was it to actually get this done? Oh, man. Hey, yeah. Well, let me, I'll, I'll answer the second question first, which is it was harder than, I mean, I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be a heavy lift, but I, I really didn't, I'm glad I didn't know. I mean, I think it's sort of like childbirth that way. Like, I'm kind of glad I didn't know exactly what it was going to be like because I probably wouldn't have done it if I did. But like, I was just talking about with this idea of, of grit 
and the importance of mastery, like really leaning in to do something where you're like, wow, I'm building a legitimate skill set. The gifts that that writing the book have given me have been, I think I'll be realizing them for many months or years to come, just recognizing like, wow, I, I had a vision for something I wanted. And I'll tell you in a minute where the inspiration for it came from. But then for me, what was really, really important was that once I decided to write the book, I didn't just want it to be sort of a fancy business card, right? Like something that was like, oh yeah, like nobody wants to read it really because it's boring, it's dry, it doesn't connect to their heart. But look, she wrote a book. And like, I didn't want that. What I wanted was, even if it was the smallest audience that would actually, for whom it would really resonate and that it would, it could maybe be perspective changing, catalytic would be my hope. I wanted to like really carve out my own being to try to thread the needle for Rising Gen and their parents and their trusted advisors to help one, shine a light on the many hidden and not talked about difficulties of being raised in a family of significance, while also acknowledging that privilege is a huge privilege, right? And and like the power that comes with being raised in a family where there's, where you're not worried about shelter and you're not worried about security and you have immense choice. That is a huge gift. And every one of the Rising John I've ever worked with would say that is a huge gift. But we can't just say that's a gift and that's something to envy or something to, you know, we have a very cluttered relationship with money and wealth. So people envy it and also kind of revile it at the same time. And to be someone who is raised in that situation and the world says money solves problems, so you shouldn't have problems when in fact, and it solves a lot of problems, but it creates other problems. And we don't talk about those problems. It's culturally, in my experience, not okay to acknowledge that there is difficulty in finding your own voice and your own path and a sense of identity and learning grit and growth mindset. And that that wealth with all of its benefits can also create detriments to, to growth and well-being. And so what I really wanted was to thread the needle in this book of acknowledging the the truth of privilege and also acknowledging the truth that it doesn't make everything okay. And that my belief is that the rising gen who have clarity of identity and who are really sort of connected to themselves and understand their identity capital, what they can bring forward into the world, they have a unique position if they so choose, because a rising gen that is lit up and on fire and really sort of clutter free, like the, has the ability, like has cleared all that emotional and psychological clutter that wealth can create. They have access to social networks and financial capital that many, many people don't. So if they are actually in a place to move forward and create change, they have the ability to do it in a way that a lot of people don't. And that's really, that was in my heart. I want to create an invitation, not only an invitation to, for rising gen, but also the pathway the recognition that shining the spotlight on, there are some core challenges and there's ways to clear that clutter, that clutter around earning, you know, contribution and work and relationships and identity and money or confused relationship with money and to clear that clutter and to move into a life of impact through impact work or impact giving or just being a really 
engaged community member. And so the inspiration for the book, probably it's been brewing in me for as long as I've been doing this work or as long as I've been living my own experience in this space. But really where the the catalytic moment for me was when I, I went back to school and got another master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania. And the master's that was is in applied positive psychology. And as a part of the degree, I had to do research. And so I decided to research exemplar rising gen family members from older high net worth families. So like the people who are at the top end of development, like who are rising gen, who would say they were thriving, they were just were flourishing in their lives. And I wanted to know like, what were the common traits and skills that those people had so that we could reverse engineer, parent for those better, help grow those traits and skills in family members? And after completing that research, I felt like, well, nobody's going to go read my my thesis, right? Like nobody wants to read a master's thesis. So how do I get this work out there so that it can actually be a helpful change agent for families in this space? And so that was the genesis of trying to figure this book out. Yeah, it, it's important work. And and also, I'll, I'll call out the forward by Sharna Goldsecker. She's been on the show, and she's yeah. doing incredible stuff as well. So what is the answer? What are the consistent themes? What are the fact patterns that you see that enable these rising gents to have this thriving, fulfilled lives? Yeah. So the that's a great question. And, and the good news is, like, it is actually doable. It's doable for a rising gen to start from where they're at, if they're 18 or 20 or 28, like these are what I found that was in common. Like you can actively build these character traits and skills and even better or sort of like, yeah, I would say even better gives, gives rising gen a leg up is if parents are parenting for these skills, they can create a much easier pathway forward, a less emotionally, psychologically cluttered pathway forward for their kids. Right. So as you think about parenting your boys, I think about parenting my girls, thinking about how is it that wealth can create a buffer that's not healthy for them is a really great question. So what I found and I again, like I don't think this is an exhaustive list either. I think that I had to when I was doing my research, I had to sort of I had to wrap my arms around a certain data set because of just time constraints to to get the research done. I think we could probably look for some other there's other factors we could say also really support healthy and awake and alive rising gen. But the things that I, that I found were very much in common in the research I did with the subjects I interviewed. One was growth mindset. And so we mentioned that came up in the HBR article. But growth mindset is really the belief that any human trait like intelligence or resilience is something that we can grow. So people with a fixed mindset think that they have they were sort of born with everything that they're going to have. And when you have a fixed mindset, you can get really stuck. Often people with fixed mindsets don't challenge themselves. They, they're they not willing to take a risk because if they go, the belief is if, if this is, you know, if I have this much smart and I go one inch beyond that, then I'm going to prove myself to not be smart. So only stay in the, only stay in the zone, you know, you can continue to shine in, which means that you don't really take risks and grow and find that you're actually way more capable. So growth mindset was a core thing that was consistent among every single research subject that they at some point in their life, some key person helped, you know, coach, you know, sometimes it was a coach, sometimes it was an uncle, sometimes it was a parent who really helped them realize like, 
I can develop these skills with good work, hard work, good strategies, and the willingness to accept feedback. The second thing was grit. We talked about that a second ago. Grit is defined as the passion, passion, perseverance for a long-term goal. It's highly correlated with lifetime success. People who are gritty just tend to do better because they will stick with something while they are learning and while they are failing, they will just keep putting one foot in front of the other. The third thing that that I found was in common was this idea of mastery orientation. And these mastery orientation actually is linked to people who are oriented towards mastery. They tend to be looking for solutions rather than looking for problems of the failure, right? So instead of when something goes wrong, instead of saying, I failed or what did I, you know, like I'm wrong. It was more like, oh, what did I learn from that? And how can I use that in this next thing that I'm going to do? You can see how mastery orientation is strongly correlated with growth mindset and grit. The third or the the fourth thing that was in common, and there's five of them here, was unconditional positive relationships. And it doesn't mean every relationship was unconditionally positive and authentic, but with the research sub- subjects I interviewed, one thing that they all named was that at a really important developmental time in their lives, usually preteen to teenagehood, they had at least one person that they knew unequivocally loved them for who they were and not what they had. That there was this really clear sense of like, I am important because of who I am, not because I have a fancy pool in my backyard or we go on cool vacations and you get to come or like it was none of the trappings. It was just this sense of like, that person loves me for me. Sometimes it was a family member. Often for these people, it was a friend. It was a someone that they just were like, I remember one interview subject was like, this particular friend of hers, she's like, she's the only one who knew where the bodies were buried, right? Like her way of saying like, we did everything together and it was all good between us. And then finally, the last one that was, that's really common. This one actually, I wished I had researched, but I didn't, but there is a ton of research out there that illustrates the importance of character strengths and the cultivation of intrinsic character strengths in each one of us that when we are clear about each one of us has a unique um, mapping of, of different character strengths, things like love or spirituality or grit or, you know, perseverance, these like different strengths that we have. And the more we know those strengths, parent for those strengths and use those strengths, the more we have flexibility to one, lean on the strengths we have in difficult situations, but also to really use them as a turbocharge when we're doing something that we're lit up about. And the good news is like, these are all things that one can grow in oneself and that that we can parent for. Yeah, it's great work. And I definitely encourage people to check out the book. And it, it seems like you've taken a lot of your own personal experience as well and, and incorporated that, which is huge. If people are interested in connecting with you, learning more about the work you're doing with families or want to check out the book, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. Thank you for that. It's easy. My my website is probably the easiest way to get information about me, the book, and be able to contact me. But it's the website is illumination, the word I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-I-O-N 360.com. There's info on the book and me and and contact information there. I'm also on LinkedIn as my primary social media. So you can just look up Kristen Kepler, K-E-F-F-E-L-E-R. I'd be delighted to connect with with listeners there and happy to to share about the book and any other ideas that that I can have that might help 
families continue to shift into this wealth 3.0 paradigm it with themselves, I, I'd be delighted to get to support that. Yeah. And I want to thank Kristen again. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, our listeners, please do leave us a review, a rating. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. And again, I'll call out the book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon. Please do check it out. And Kristen, a question that we ask folks to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Mm, that I didn't know this question was coming. I'm delighted that you that you I asked don't it. include it on the intake form because I like to people to be surprised. I do. I love it. I do. So one of the things, so I my daily practice is every morning I have, as you can see, I have a, a little dog here, a little mini Aussie. She and I go out on the front porch right before the sun comes up and I spend some contemplative time out there with her while the sun's coming up. Sometimes it's just 10 minutes. Sometimes I get 30, but it's the time that I get to like before the busyness of parenting and work and all the other stuff happens. And I find that that time of dawn is like, there's just this reminder of just the vastness of that, you know, I'm just one small piece of this really significant thing that is happening. And, and one of the things I've also found is that from a character strengths perspective, appreciation of beauty is lower on my character strengths list. And so, but I, I want to slow down enough to just see and appreciate the beauty that, that has been created for us. And so it's my way of building that character strength and taking a, a moment of peace. And I love the question, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I liked your response. That's cool. I'm an early riser myself. So I, I understand that time of day. Uh, well, Kristen, I want to thank you so much again for coming on the show. Best of luck with the book and all the work you're doing. And I look forward to staying in touch. Me too, Brian. Thank you for taking the time. This has been really fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.